In verse 11, the paragraph begins by the word for. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. These verses give us a beautiful balance of how truth affects life. How truth affects life. They're all about knowing, being, and doing. And they all relate to what we started out to explain last week, grace. The grace of God is sort of the kingpin to the entire paragraph. It's introduced to us in verse 11. You might say that grace is the crown of God's activities toward man. We remember the definition. It means undeserved, unmerited favor of God toward undeserving sinners. And it's sort of the hinge in the New Testament of all of God's other activities. And grace is what distinguishes, it's one of the things at least, that distinguishes Christianity from all other belief systems and all other religions. Only Christianity knows what it's like to be free in Christ, under the grace of God, not earning anything, not deserving anything. There was an uh, article in the Grand Rapids, Michigan newspaper that said, conversation to Hindu faith is tortuous. That was the headlines. Here's part of the article. A West German businessman has completed his conversion to the Hindu faith by piercing himself through the cheeks with a one-quarter inch thick, four-foot-long steel rod and pulling a chariot for two miles by ropes attached to his back and chest by steel hooks. Others walk through 20-foot-long pits of fire, don shoes with soles made of nails, or hang in the air spread eagle from hooks embedded in their backs. What a contrast! to believing in one who took all of the torture in his own body for our sins so that his followers can follow him by faith, not by torturing themselves or any kind of self-inflicted discipline. What a contrast Christianity is with that religion. Now, there are some people who speak of grace, but you never see it in their lives. It's like every time they talk, they're angry. They're arguing with somebody or something. Oh, they'll acknowledge the idea of grace, but they never demonstrate any of it. I have a letter that is actually a beautiful letter. It's, it's such a wonderful letter, I've decided to keep it. But it shows what God can do, and I think what God wants to do, with a lot of people who hold on to grace in name only, but they don't live any of it in their lives. It's a letter from a pastor. I didn't even know the guy until he wrote me the letter, but he's been speaking against me for many, many years. And uh, let me just read the letter. I think it's pretty self-explanatory. Dear Pastor Skip, I have been meaning to write to you for some time in order to set some matters aright. 
I know that we are not personally acquainted, and this may seem somewhat awkward, but to be straightforward, the Lord has been impressing on my heart the need to do this for quite a while. The reason I am writing is to ask you to forgive me for speaking against you in times past. Having been raised up in a fellowship which I now believe to have a problem with legalism and self-righteousness, I saw your ministry as lukewarm, that is, failing to make the proper demands on Christians, etc. The fact that you attracted large numbers of people was simply attributed to the fact that you were given over to compromise. In recent times, God has had mercy on me and has given me fresh understanding of the truths of grace, liberty, and the Spirit-filled life, and has shown me how much I had become a part of a Christian religion. One of the means by which the Lord opened my eyes was through meeting several Christians from your church. Rather than being the lukewarm, compromised believers that I expected, I found them to be some of the finest believers I had ever met. They are the fruit of your powerful teaching ministry, and by them, as the Lord said, I know you to be a servant of the Lord. There is much more to the story than I will share with you in this letter, lest it turn into an epic episode. If you would ever like to meet with me and hear the whole story, I would be very glad to have that opportunity. I am in the midst of change, and God is showing me more and more every day concerning His grace, and I have discovered a dimension of the Word of God that I had lost to what I call, quote-unquote, Christian religion soon after I was saved in 1975. My preaching against your ministry and others was something that I learned from the group of which I have been a part of for these 18 years. This is not to excuse myself, and I do sincerely ask you to forgive those things which I said and preached in past concerning your ministry. I greatly enjoy listening to you and other Bible teachers from Calvary and am pleased with the new radio station which you have acquired. May the Lord continue to bless your ministry. And since then, of course, I called him and we got together and we met and we prayed together. And what a wonderful brother he is, but what a step. What a step of maturity to admit that, to come clean, to ask forgiveness. But what a freeing thing that must be for this guy to have known only legalism and be turned completely to the grace of God. Beautiful, beautiful testimony. Now, on the other hand, saying that, that there are some people who speak about grace and never exhibit it, there are other people who I think in the church have a very false concept of what grace is, a very sloppy concept. The idea of grace to some people is that you acquiesce to everything and you overlook everything and you just smile real nice. And the idea is that, of course, they have in their minds this picture of the nature of Jesus as gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon this little child, the Sunday school Jesus. While that's nice and it's a friendly concept and it's a very safe concept, Probably they have never read such passages like Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus, time after time, says, Woe unto you, Pharisees, you hypocrites, on and on. Now this is incarnate love saying these things. Incarnate grace saying these things. Now what Paul does here, I think, is beautifully balances the concept of grace in verse 11 through 15. In I call this message the scope of grace because what he does is he reaches back and looks at the past and how God's grace dealt with us in salvation. He looks at the present and how God deals with us in sanctification, which means he cleans us up. And then third, he goes way into the future and he talks about God's grace in glorification. 
when Jesus comes back. So the idea is that grace begins it, it carries us through, and it will take us to the very end, the scope of God's grace. And what he does is simply this in the chapter. I'll sum it up for you. He tells Titus to give instructions to the church. He says, Titus, tell the people in the church their general profiles. Old, older men are to act this way, younger men this way, older women and younger women this way, and slaves are to act a certain way. So he gives the profile, then he gives the purpose of the profile, is that so that we would make the Word of God attractive by our lifestyle. We would be so different from the world, and our lifestyle would be so attractive that people would be brought to the faith by our testimony, by our lifestyle. Thirdly and finally in this chapter, he gives the principle of the profile. The profile, the purpose of the profile, and the principle of the profile, which is God's grace. Past, present, and future. And I think you could ask any one of us, and we'd all say, we need it from beginning to end, right? Man is born a broken creature. The grace of God is the glue that mends us together. And so beginning in verse 11, he talks about the grace of God past, and then verse 12, present, verse 13, future, and he ties a few of those thoughts together in verse 14 and gives a sort of a capstone by saying, go for it, speak these things with all authority. Looking at the past then, the grace of God in our past and salvation, verse 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Now I believe that what Paul is speaking about is the coming of Jesus Christ the first time. Jesus came, and Jesus, when he came, was grace personified. He is the ultimate demonstration of God's grace. The word appeared is a word epiphane, where you get the word epiphany, which simply means to make something not there or that you don't see visible, to make something invisible visible. And the tense that the word in verse 11 is used in is called an aorist tense. In other words, it's something that happened a long time ago. It's over with. It's a completed work never to happen again. It's once and for all, and we are reaping the benefits of that action ever since in the present. That's the idea of the aorist tense. The grace of God that brought salvation has appeared, epiphany, been made visible. And I think what he's speaking about is saying that Jesus Christ has appeared. He's come. The Bible speaks about two appearances, two epiphanies, the first one and the second one. first one has already happened. We're waiting for the second one. You might say that right now as the church, we're living in between the two epiphanies of Jesus Christ. And when he came the first time to secure salvation for the world, he went to the cross, and his work on the cross is a finished work. You don't have to have a continual sacrifice on the cross. It's a once and for all activity. But that's the idea, I think, of the grace of God appearing. By the way, John spoke of Jesus Christ this way. He said, the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, He made everything. And he said, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And of His fullness we have all received, and grace 
for grace. For the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In other words, the personification of God's grace is in Jesus Christ. And when he came and he went to the cross, that is the ultimate demonstration of how freely God will grant salvation to people that his son would die on the cross for our sins. So grace in its fullness began with Jesus Christ. Now that's not to say there wasn't any grace in the Old Testament. Sometimes people will say, oh, the Old Testament is a story of the wrath of God and it shows a very different God from the God of the New Testament. The God of the New Testament is loving and gracious. The God of the Old Testament is mean and threatening. Nothing could be further from the truth. These were two different covenants. In the Old Testament, there was grace. God allowed people to come to Him and approach Him through an animal. God graciously overlooked the sins of a person by letting an animal get killed instead of a human. That's grace. It's not the same kind of grace that we experience now. And in comparison, the law of the Old Testament and the grace of the New Testament seem like miles apart. You see, in the Old Testament, you would have to come and approach an altar of judgment before you get to a throne of mercy, right? You have to go through a series of courtyards in the tabernacle. You bring an animal. They would kill it on the outer altar, the altar of sacrifice. And the blood had to run on that altar before you could be represented in the inner sanctum. And you couldn't even get in there. Only the priest could get in there once a year. And he would sprinkle blood upon what? The mercy seat. So you come through the altar of judgment before you get to the seat of mercy. Now in the New Testament, you don't have to do that. The altar of sacrifice and the sacrifice itself has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who came as the ultimate personification of God's grace and dealt with the sin issue. So now we approach personally God's throne of grace. That's why it says, let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. So the full display of God's grace came when Jesus came. Now notice it says that it brings salvation. The grace of God that brings salvation. You cannot save yourself. You cannot attain salvation by being a good person. You know why? Because you can't be good enough. Now, if you say, well, I'm going to work hard to be really good, then God will never accept you. Because how can you be good enough for God? What kind of a prideful person would it take to say, God, I deserve heaven. I mean, I've really worked hard. you got to admit, I'm a pretty wonderful person. And I deserve heaven. I deserve your eternal glory. That's a joke. If you try to come that way, you'll never be accepted. The only way you can come is to come by the salvation that God brings. And it's a free gift. You have to say, I can't make it. I am not good enough. And so I come based on the grace of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, a passage you're all familiar with. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, verse 14 gives us further insight into how this grace through Jesus Christ works. Who gave himself for us. 
that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous of good works. Jesus Christ gave himself for us. That is, he became a substitute for us so that we, unlike the Hindu religion with the hooks and the spread eagle and the thing through the jaw, we don't have to go through any of that rigmarole. He's taken all of that upon himself so that he can grant salvation as a free gift because he took your place. The idea of vicarious atonement or substitutionary atonement. Now it uses the word redeem in verse 14. I'm sure when the first recipients of this letter heard that word, they brought a smile to their face because it's a term of slavery. It means to buy somebody at a slave market, to set a slave free from his master by giving a receipt of payment. I'm paying to let this slave go free. And there were so many slaves, 60 million in the Roman Empire, and some of them were in the church at Crete, that when they read this letter, to redeem us, to set a slave free by the paying of a price, it brought a special joy to their heart. And it's a good term, redemption, because before you came to Jesus Christ, you were a slave, right? And you're still a slave, right? Oh, you bet you are a slave. You're a slave to Christ now. You were a slave to sin. It says in Ephesians chapter 2 once again, we were fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Now we've all heard testimonies, and we all love testimonies. A typical testimony, I used to be this way and I was really into alcoholism, but... Or I was into drugs and God saved me. Or I was into the pursuit of power or pleasure. Or I was held by needing the affection of people. But when I came to Christ, and there's all of these testimonies of how people were once enslaved to a habit, enslaved to sin. And as wonderful as those testimonies are, they tell us something. Number one, you ought to have compassion for a sinner for an unbeliever. You know, we look out at the world and it's so filthy and rotten and we see the headlines, this is horrible. How can this world... What do you expect sinners to do? Be good? Now, if that stuff's happening in the church, if the divorce rate is that high in the church, if these things and all of the crime and all of the subterfuge and all of the corruption are happening in the church, you ought to be alarmed. But in the world, they're unredeemed. And Christians ought to have deep compassion for the slavery that sin produces. Sin is a tyrant. It's like a despotic ruler that puts its talons into people and doesn't let them go. They're held by it. Secondly, it shows us the man is not his own master. That's why we need redemption. You just don't break free from slavery. Sometimes people pride themselves. They'll say, I'm the captain of my own fate. I control my own destiny. Well, I suppose you could if you changed bosses if you left the slavery of sin and the devil and gave allegiance by faith to Jesus Christ, then you could quit before payday for the wages of sin or death. But the gift of God, that's grace, is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So you come to Jesus Christ, He redeems you. You change bosses. You were a slave of sin and you become then a slave of Jesus Christ. John put it this way in his letter. In 1 John chapter 5, he says, We know 
that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Man, that's an incredible statement. You ask, well, could the whole world be wrong? We know, beloved or little children, that we are of the truth and the whole world lies under the grip or the sway of the wicked one. That's what Jesus meant in John chapter 8 when he said, You shall know the truth, and the truth will, what? Set you free. Do you remember the reply of the Pharisees? As soon as he said that, being proud about their Jewish heritage, they said, Hey, we're children of Abraham. We've never been slaves to anyone. Jesus said, Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. You say you've never been in bondage. You are in bondage. If you commit sin... That is, live that lifestyle, you are a slave of sin. And so you've changed employers. You've quit before payday. You have been redeemed. That's past tense, and it's by the grace of God. And Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. Like Bobby Dylan used to sing, you got to serve somebody. We're praying that he'll remember the words of his own songs, right? you got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. So the bottom line is, who owns you? What are your master passions in life? What are you living for? That's the past tense. Now, before we move on to the next, how much grace is there? Notice verse 11. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to a few people. To all men. Now let me tell you what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that automatically everybody's saved. That would contradict nine-tenths of the Scripture. It doesn't mean that everybody is aware of the salvation. It simply means that it's made available to all classes of mankind. That's the context here. Whether you're older, younger, male, female, or slave, or free, salvation has appeared to all those classes of people. And anyone has the availability to come to God through Jesus Christ. But it's appeared to all men. Paul put it sort of the same way with different wording in Romans when he said the grace of God has abounded to many. How much grace is there? Well, it abounds. The word is overflows to anybody who wants it. There's a great old hymn of the church. I don't remember all of it, but I do remember one stanza of it. It is so picturesque about the grace and love of God that I've memorized it. It says, Could we with ink the oceans fill and were the skies of parchment made were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God would drain the oceans dry nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. Incomprehensible. The grace of God, unlimited, that is lavished upon us. How much? It's appeared to all men. It's abounded to many. And we're part of the many, aren't we? And when we get to heaven, we're not going to go, I deserve it. You know, it's been said that when you get to heaven, you're going to have three surprises. First of all, all the people you didn't think would get there that will be there. Secondly, the people you thought would be there that are not. And third of all, that you're there. (laughs) A refreshing surprise. The grace of God that is abounded. That's how you get saved. That's the beginning of it. 
Back in the 1400s, there was a coin that the Spanish printed. And the coin had the Rock of Gibraltar, which is sort of the last vestige of civilization back then. That was, you know, the end of the world. And the coin had printed on it, Ne plus ultra. That's Latin for no more beyond. And those coins were circulated widely throughout the world until Columbus came back from his voyages. And they made the coin again, but they took off the ne. They just put plus ultra, more beyond. They all thought, there's no more beyond. This is the end of the world. You're never going to find much after this. Columbus said, ah, take that coin away. I found a whole lot more where that came from. There is more beyond. And just when you think that, oh, God couldn't love me. Oh, God's been so gracious to me and I'm such a failure. There's more beyond. God's grace is inexhaustible to you. And it's available to all. That's the past. Let's look at the present. The grace of God and sanctification. Verse 12, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. In other words, the grace of God doesn't just begin and end at salvation. It's a lifelong thing. There's a lot of people that look back, but they never look to the present. They live in the good old days syndrome. Do you know anybody like that? Oh, the good old days. Oh, I remember when Calvary was much smaller. Oh, I remember when God used to move and I used to sit in this little chair. Oh, I remember those songs and now it's different. Oh, I remember what God used to do in my own life. What about this present age? What is God presently doing in your life now? God isn't on vacation. And God moves from facility to facility if we let Him. This present age, the idea here is that the grace of God begins, but it continues. It teaches us to deny lust. And you see, that speaks against the idea that, ah, well, grace just overlooks everything, just smile, let everybody do what they want, grace, grace, grace. The idea of grace, if it's true grace in the past, you'll see it in the present by a changed and godly lifestyle. That's what that next verse means. It teaches us, verse 12, denying, you say no to certain things, ungodliness, worldly lusts, and you say yes to other things. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. We live in this present age. We're not to live for this present age. Nor are we to be like this present age. And verse 12 bears that out. Galatians chapter 1 verse 4 says, Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. I've quoted often to you that maxim that I like. God loves you the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. You come, you don't have to come cleaned up. But after you come to him, he's going to clean you up. He cleans the fishes that he catches. (laughs) You don't have to clean them. Isn't that great? You're to be a fisher of men. He didn't say, go clean my fish. He just says, catch them. (laughs) And then we feed the sheep and God uses the word of God. But he does it. He cleans the fishes that he catches. In the third century, and uh, some of you who went through our school of ministry will remember this, uh, there was a debate of Celsus against Origen. And Origen was that Alexandrian church father 
And Celsus came to him, and they, in this debate, he said, When most teachers go forth to teach, they cry, Come to me, you who are clean and worthy, and they are followed by the highest caliber of people available. But your silly master says, Come to me, you who are down and beaten by life. And so he accumulates around him the ragtag and the bobtail of humanity. Origen replied, Yes, they are the ragtag, and they are the bobtail of humanity. But Jesus does not leave them that way. Out of material you would have thrown away as useless, he fashions men, giving them back their self-respect, enabling them to stand on their feet and look God in the eyes. They were coward. They were cringing. They were broken things. But the Son has set them free. What a great response to that accusation. Michelangelo, the great artist, it is said, was looking upon some stone and he took his chisel to it and some one saw him hammering away at that formless mass of stone. Said, what are you, what are you doing? He says, I'm freeing an angel that's trapped inside. He saw the potential. He just didn't see the unformed mass. God looks at your life and he's freeing you. He's taking out the angel that is trapped inside. He's changing you from glory to glory. It says, into the same image. How does he do that? Does he do it by just us saying, well, you know, I came to Christ and now, you know, I just kind of sit back and, and, uh, just smile real big and, and just, you know, hang. Now, I'll tell you, that's an important question because there is a debate raging about that. How much is the Christian involved in that cleaning up process, the sanctification process? Well, the Bible says a whole lot about God's doing His work through us. The Bible also says a whole lot about our cooperating with God through obedience, right? Both of those things are truths that are supposed to be together. It's not one or the other. It's God does His work, but we cooperate by obedience. You can't have one without the other. I'd like you to turn left, go down a few blocks to the book of Romans, to chapter 6. And let's look at a text. It is probably a familiar text. But it's a great uh, illustration of this. Romans chapter 6, verse 15, question that was posed to the apostle, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? No way, Jose. That's paraphrased for certainly not. <laughs> Do you not know that to whom you, you present yourself as slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin to death or of obedience to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which you were delivered, to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness, and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were freed in regard to righteousness. For what fruit did you have in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and to the end, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
So you see, loving God is more than an emotional goosebump where we go, oh, God's grace was great. It happened a long time ago, and now I can do anything I want to do because I'm covered by that umbrella called grace. According to the New Testament, once grace changes you at salvation, it changes you throughout. It not only redeems you, it reforms you. And the way we cooperate with God in that, and we do cooperate, is through obedience. It's through obedience. There was a husband and his wife, they heard about a tour to Israel, tour to the Holy Land, and he got so excited and goes, wouldn't it be great to stand on Mount Sinai, the Mount Sinai, and shout out the Ten Commandments? And his wife said, wouldn't it be better to just stay home and keep them? That couple needed some help. And that's really a part of salvation. Remember, the angel said you will call his name Jesus because he will what? Save his people from their sins, not in their sins. He'll save them from them. And it's the power of God in the past to eradicate the guilt sentence. But it's also the power of God to change the way we live in the present. And there's two sides of the coin. One hand is the grace of God acting. The other hand is the grace of God enabling us to obey. I've got to say, both of those go together. Now, I mentioned this debate. For a long time, Christians have argued about this idea of getting holy or being sanctified. And there's two positions. There's more, but there's two major polarizing positions. There's the position of the quietist, and there's the position of the pietist. These are theological positions. The quietists say, oh, you don't really do anything. You just sit back and you just let go and you just surrender, and God does it all. You just don't do anything at all. That's called quietism. The opposing position is called pietism. You work hard, you pull yourself up by your spiritual bootstraps, you prove to God that you're this and that, and you work, work, work. Now, the more overt position of this is extreme legalism. And you, you become so far removed, perhaps like the Amish. We don't believe in electricity, no gadgets, nothing. All of that is ungodly, and we'll just live separated lives out in the country, uh, not enjoying any of the world's gadgetry, electricity, cars, etc. The Bible seems to strike a balance. On one hand, it says, God has done it all. Past tense. But there's always a therefore. In every single epistle Paul writes, he says stuff like this, basically. Now, for 12 chapters in Romans, I've been talking about all that God's done. Therefore, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In Ephesians, God has done this, and you're in heavenly places. Now, this is the life that you're to live. By obedience, and by denying the flesh, and by obeying God in this area. So both of those are married together. Example, 2 Peter chapter 1. His divine power, and I'll just read it to you, you can look it up later. His divine power has given to us all that pertains to life and godliness. His divine power has done it all. Then it goes on to say, for this very reason, giving all diligence add to your faith. It's also seen in Colossians 1. I labor striving according to the working which he works in me mightily. So here's the idea, folks. Believers are to put every ounce of energy, not to get saved, 
but because they've experienced the grace of God and their motivation is the love of God. They put all that they have into serving the Lord and what enables them to do it is the grace of God that didn't just happen at one time but continues through their life to the present time. Both of those are true. Now, there was a man who went to the hardware store. He was a do-it-yourselfer kind of a guy, and he wanted a saw to cut down some logs. He'd been cutting by hand with one of those long logging saws. So he came in and said, I want the best saw that you have. And the guy in the hardware store sold him the best chainsaw that he had. man took it home, came back a few days later, sweat on his brow, and said, Man, I'm exhausted. This saw is horrible. And you said this thing would cut ten cords of wood a day. I've been working all day, and I've cut three. I cut more with my old hand saw than this thing. This is uh, this is no good. I don't know what kind of a saw this is. And the guy said, well, I'm, I'm sorry. Let me find out what's wrong. Let's go to the back lot. They go to the back lot, put some wood down. He takes the saw, pulls the cord. Vroom! And the man who had bought the saw startled goes, what's that noise? <laughs> oh, that poor fella. He'd been doing it by hand. He didn't even know it was powered by a motor. Can you imagine trying to, uh, with a chainsaw? three cords of wood. <laughs> That's the extreme pietist position. The quietist would probably just, you know, crank it and then walk inside and watch TV, expecting it to cut itself. <laughs> the idea is you hold it, you cut it, but it's powered by something greater than the saw itself. You cannot live the Christian life apart from a work of the Holy Spirit. But it's available to you so you can live the Christian life in power. It's available through an act of grace through the Holy Spirit. Now we have ten more minutes to cover the final point, just on time, the future. God's grace in the future, and that is the grace of God in glorification. I'm in Romans. Let's turn back to uh, Titus <laughs> chapter 2. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. That's past and present. Here's the future. Looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Isn't that great? By the way... I know a lot of times Christians are accused by certain cult groups who say, you know, the Bible never says Jesus is God. This is one of the clearest phrases that Jesus Christ is deity anywhere in the New Testament. In the Greek language, there is only one article given for two names that refer to one person. It's to Megalutheu Kaisoteros, the great God and Savior. The great God and Savior are the same exact person as shown by that one article. That's awesome. The great God is our Savior, Jesus Christ, is what he's saying. Okay, now what he's talking about here is looking to the future, the blessed hope. Now, since Jesus left the earth, the early church has been looking for the return of Jesus Christ. It's one of the hallmarks of Christianity. Jesus promised he'd come back, didn't he? He told his disciples, hey, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I'd have told you. I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. If I go, I will come again. I'll receive you to myself, that where I am, there you will be. 
Then as Jesus ascended up into heaven, the disciples were just kind of checking it out, gazing, mouth gaped open, no doubt. The angel came and said, Men of Galilee, what are you doing staring up into heaven? The same Jesus who left will come in like manner as you have seen him go. Ever since Jesus left, the early church and Christians throughout history have been looking for that blessed hope of Jesus' return. Are you looking for it? You know, there's a difference between looking at it and looking for it. You can look at something, but not look for something. You can understand theologically the Scriptures, and you can have it all mapped out in your little eschatological charts, and have a little cross here, and then, you know, the rapture, and then, you know, seven years. And, and you can study it, know all about it, and be very versed in it, and you can observe it and look at it, but not be looking for it with anticipation. Or you could be a person who doesn't necessarily know much about the theology of the thing, but you can't wait for Jesus to come back. That's looking for it. Here's the difference. A wedding. Guests and the public who come to a wedding look at it. The bride, for a long time, has been looking for it. Big difference in outlook. She's been thinking about it, dreaming about it, and she walks down the aisle, it's like, yes! This is the day. And the groom's going, yes, this is the day. They're looking for it. They're not just looking at it. We are looking for, with anticipation, the coming of Jesus Christ, that wedding day. Now, it's important, and we have a few minutes to kind of tie the ends together, to make a distinction in the way Jesus comes back between two events, two events at the end of time. One event is when Jesus comes for the church. The other is when Jesus comes as ruler of the world. You say, wait a minute, I thought you said there were two epiphanies, his first coming to the earth and his second. There are. When Jesus comes for his church, the saints, the Bible says he's not going to come to the earth. He'll only do that when he comes the second time. When he comes for his church, what we affectionately call the rapture of the church, He won't come to the earth. We'll go up to the clouds, 1 Thessalonians 4 says, to meet Him in the air so we shall ever be with the Lord. The second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth is where He comes as Lord and as Judge, as predicted in Revelation chapter 19. Listen to how it's put in the Gospel of Matthew. Immediately after the tribulation, this is Matthew 24, a familiar passage, Jesus said, immediately after the tribulation of those days, The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. So the rapture of the church, this is how I see it at least, the rapture of the church will come We will meet the Lord in the air. We will be with Him. There will be a seven-year period of judgment and purging upon the earth and a reuniting of the nation of Israel under 144,000 that last seven years. At the end of that seven years, Jesus comes to the earth. And He comes with His saints. He comes with His church. How does He come with His church unless the church got there somehow before that event? Behold, He cometh with ten thousands of His saints, and every eye shall see Him. Then when he comes back, there'll be judgment. There'll be a period of millennium. And then finally, um, a final judgment. They're, They're different events, though. The rapture is sudden, and it is unannounced. 
It is sudden and unannounced. It says this in the scripture, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, or as Jesus himself put it, therefore be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect him. Now that is for the church, not the world. He comes instantly, unexpectedly, unannounced. Not everybody sees him, and we meet him in the air. That second phase, that second event, when Jesus comes to planet Earth, called the second coming, the second epiphany of Jesus Christ, that is a predictable event. It comes seven years after the rapture. It's a period of tribulation. From the middle of the tribulation, in fact, the Scripture says you could count the days And it gives a timetable, whereas the rapture of the church, there is no timetable. You could count three and a half years in days for the second coming of Jesus Christ. The church comes with them. Everybody will see it. Everyone on earth, unlike the rapture. Jesus in Matthew 24 said, As lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. So we're dealing with a seven-year gap between those two events. Now, I know that there's different chronology, there's different positions, there's mid-trib, there's post-trib, and listen, you can believe anything you want. You're not a heretic if you believe it. You're an accurate yes, but not a heretic. That's all right. I think it's clear from the Scripture, but I also know there are other positions. But here's the point. I want to get back to this point of grace. In the past, God's grace saved us. In the present, God's grace purifies us. In the future, as we look to the future, The grace of God will not only take us through to the future, but looking for the blessed hope purifies us now. Listen, it's called the blessed hope because we're looking not for the Antichrist, like a mid-tribulation or post-tribulation position would be looking not for Christ to return, but for the Antichrist to come on the scene. It's a blessed hope because we're looking not for the Antichrist, but for Jesus Christ to appear for the church. And it purifies us. 1 John chapter 2 says, Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. The hope of the coming. Excuse me, 1 John 3. Purifies himself even as he is pure. I remember when I was a kid and I started uh, getting a little bit cantankerous with mom oh, around 1, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I've been with her all day and got old, and so I saw how much I could get away with, and she would always say, your dad will be home in about uh, an hour and a half. That's all it took. Now, I love to see my dad in the afternoon. I wanted to spend time with him, but I also... It was a holy kind of a motivation. It's like, you know, I better do the right thing here. Dad's coming home. It was a holy incentive wasn't that I was fearful of my dad. I loved my dad. But I was, in a sense, fearful of the punishment. Now, under grace, God saved you. Under grace, He purifies you. Under grace, you'll see Jesus one day. And as you look to the future, it's a blessed hope and a purifying factor. So, the full scope of God's grace in your life, past, present, future. Wilbur Chapman, who used to preach in this country years ago, one of his most enjoyable stories to tell was of a man who came to one of his meetings with this story. He said, I got off at the Pennsylvania Depot as a tramp, and for a year I begged on the streets for a living. One day, I touched a man on the shoulder and said, Hey, mister, can you give me a dime? 
As soon as I saw his face, I was shocked to see that it was my own father. I said, Father? Father, do you know me? Throwing his arms around me, with tears in his eyes, he said, Oh, my son, at last I have found you. I found you. You want a dime? Everything I have is yours. Think of it. I was a tramp. I stood begging my own father for ten cents when for 18 years he's been looking for me to give me all that he had. Maybe God's been looking for you. Maybe your relationship with God really isn't a real relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Maybe you're still out there like a big girl. Oh, God, please, let me just shoot up this little prayer. Oh, God, please help me in this. It's like you want a dime. God has so much for you, so many resources. He wants to take you the way you are, clean you up, lavish His resources upon you so that you can grow in holiness more like Him and enjoy the abundant life that He has and give you hope as you look through life at any catastrophe, you look through the lens of a blessed hope. And no matter what is happening now, it's only going to get better. That's a blessed hope. And so he concludes finally this chapter, speak these things, summing it up, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one despise you. And so, Father, after having looked at the scope of your grace in the profile of the church, the grace of God for the older, the younger, the slave, the free, the male, the female, that grace that has been made available to all classes of mankind, Jesus Christ has appeared once and for all to take away the sins of the world. It's made available to anyone, past tense, forevermore. Lord, that grace also is meant for the present to teach us that by your grace, through your power, we can deny ungodliness, selfish living, ungodly lusts, and we can crave the things of the Spirit as an act of your grace. And then we think of the future, that your grace will take us all the way to heaven, not because we deserve it. That one who came the first time will come the second time. And as we live between those epiphanies, I pray that we would live a life that is pleasing to you. Change us by your grace. Help us, Lord, to serve you with all of our heart, putting every bit of energy into it, but not on our own energy. May we be energized out of love for you, and in response to your unmerited favor for us. Oh, Lord, how we love you. Lord, with that kind of attitude, we can never burn out. Help us, Lord, to channel our service in a way that is most pleasing to you. Thank you, Lord, for this time. Time of celebration, time of encouragement. In Jesus' name, amen.